Hello, good people. This is Sister Julia Walsh, and you're listening to Messy Jesus Business. Welcome to The Mess. Thank you for pausing. Yeah. What's up, Allison? I'm here with Father Justin Claraval SJ, who is an associate pastor at Dolores Mission Church in Los Angeles, California. Uh, I'm here at Dolores Mission in California. I'm taking a break from Chicago. During his Jesuit life, uh, Father Justin taught religion in prisons and high schools and led faith-sharing groups for teenagers and young adults. He currently accompanies his parish school, participates in the ecclesial-based communities and social justice committee, and is an artist. <laughs> Father Justin, welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Thank you for having me, sister. Good to be here. I love the energy, and thanks for making it all the way to California. I'm glad we can give you a reason to wear short sleeves. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to be out of the Midwest, and Dolores Mission is amazing. I'm uh, excited to let our listeners learn about this parish and all the life that's happening here, the way the Spirit is moving in this parish community. But first, let's talk about you. Tell me, how did you come to know you were called to live and serve as a Jesuit priest? How did I know? I don't know. Sometimes every day I'm still trying to ask that question. How do I know? It's a difficult epistemological challenge. How do I know? But Yeah, how do you know? You know, a lot of the times to answer that question, we tell a story. And the story changes in detail the older I get and the more I look back. But I just say, like, very simply, like, the Jesuits were the first priests that I felt like I could have a conversation with in a real kind of way. The first Jesuit I ever met, Father Bill... He almost forced himself to laugh a lot of times. Like he had a good sense of humor. He wouldn't answer my questions directly. He'd also tell stories. And I was going through a time of transition in my life in college. And he gave me the tools to talk about it in a way that made sense and to and to just like to be real about my doubts and my struggles of faith. And so encountering the Jesuits and how they did Catholicism. And then he introduces me to St. Ignatius Mm. and then encountering this other way of praying, which, you know, growing up Filipino American, like uh, my idea of prayer was a very specific and for my and in my heart at the time, very limited way of understanding prayer. It's it's a lot of cultural devotions, which are really powerful and they've sustained my ancestors for for decades, for centuries. But it wasn't speaking to me in my context. So then to meet a Jesuit, to meet St. Ignatius, to find out there are ways of praying that actually take seriously my experience of my daily life and seeing finding God in that that was very consoling but then Saint Ignatius led me to meet Jesus mm. and really like that's kind of the game changer mm. because then it's like well if i believe that god was a real man walking and laughing and eating and farting and like <laughs> yeah, right. just doing things that humans do yeah. then like i can actually get to know god i really felt like i came to meet jesus as a real person And if that's true, if there was a real man who died and then rose from the dead, then how could I live the life and plan to live my life in in a way that I'd been planning to before? I already started to see the trajectory of my life as one that wasn't really inspiring much uh, joy or excitement in me, you know what Mm. I mean? Just kind of getting into like, you know, just a, a child of immigrants 
you know, a lot of our parents who are immigrants come here, they want a better life for their kids, but the shape of that better life tends to take the form of like a white middle-class American life. Mm. And I started to see my life at the end of high school, okay, I'm going to go to college so I can get a job that makes lots of money and then have a family and then just make tons of money until I'm too tired to spend it and then just keep going. And then like, it was almost like having a midlife crisis at 18, you know, <laughs> yeah. but I was just going to keep going because I didn't know what else to do. Mm. You know, my parents were the ones who were um, footing the bill for, for my education. But then meeting Jesus, you know, that kind of relativized everything. Mm. But I also think it made things, it, it just changed the way that I thought that I could live a good life. That's the sweet side of it. The sour side of it as well is that like, you know, knowing that I come with a very selfish bend to my to my desires, meeting someone who is inspiring me and, and also having mercy on me um, allows and gives me a way of living that kind of continuously challenges me to go outside of myself. Mm. That that's really for me what repentance is, you know. Um, mm -hmm. So you met Jesus. It sounds like you really know him well at this point, <laughs> which is good. I mean, you're a priest. Yeah, we have our ups and downs. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I want to hear more about that. But first, I'm curious about what you said about prayer mm -hmm. and what and how the Jesuits sort of taught you a new form of prayer. And it was very different than the Filipino cultural form of prayer. And help me to understand the contrast and like yeah, what yeah. what is prayer now? Yeah. Well, what is prayer now? Prayer for me now is uh, brewing a cup of coffee sitting down um if i can't get my thoughts together or too distracted then i write it all down in my journal mm. and then i i read that to jesus and then in some deep breaths just try to focus on and notice how jesus responds to those you mm. know and then try to listen deeply to what the invitation or the question jesus might have for me in my heart so prayer to me is that that trying to be aware and conscious and being noticed and noticing what Jesus is, who Jesus is, who God is, and noticing what's in my heart to bring to that relationship. So it's an encounter, but it's also something that's really couched in like, the way that I try to ordinarily live my life and how I have conversations with people, but sometimes in a, in a way that I can't talk to other people, yeah. you know, because then I don't have to be or perform or do anything else. I can just be yeah. with God. The sad part is I think a lot of what I carried before that and a lot of what other people of faith carry is that they feel like they have to be a certain way to talk to Jesus mm. as opposed to just talking with Jesus as you are, mm -hmm. you know? And that's where I always like to point people out. Like most of the Psalms are people being pissed off at God, you <laughs> uh -huh, know? And uh -huh. like, and being very uh, explicit and unfiltered with it too. Right. So it's like, could we give, could we give that part of our heart to God? You know, and that's those are those are nuances of my own relationship with Jesus that are coming to the fore. And I think for the benefit of my own relationship with God, you know, mm. to be sad, to be angry, not just to be joyful or hopeful. Those are those are really deep emotions that a lot of us carry and sometimes don't really feel like we can bring that out to other people. So it sounds like for you, prayers is like getting in touch with what you're feeling in your body and in your heart even some of the questions in your mind in a way it's being real it's yeah. being prayer just being real with myself and then mm -hmm. bring being real with myself before god and noticing god being real with me i wish i could quote the author 
that came up with this phrase, maybe you know better than me, but I know when I was trained as a spiritual director, one of the things we learned is that how contemplation is really a long loving look at the real. Yeah. And I think that's what you're describing. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is like if, and, and I will say that for myself when I am in a space of prayer intentionally, I mean, I do feel like prayer is something that like flits through me like air and light all the time. But, but if I'm, really like, okay, now I'm praying. This is what I'm doing at this time. It's, it is about getting in touch with the reality, like, Mm -hmm. and not, not even, you know, you can go through your day and through your life and have all these stories that you're telling yourself about what's, what's happening. What's the experience? What's the dynamic here? And then wait, let, let God show me the truth Mm -hmm. and then listening and letting that realness be inform me and inspire me and and actually show me the way forward through the things that are complicated the truth or uh, a different perspective yeah um of on things um about myself about the world about other people you know just hearing another voice that's just not just my own voice you know echoing in my echoing in between my skull you know what i mean yeah yeah, yeah. And that's intentional. Like, I mean, like you too, like I do experience moments of prayer and moments of consolation throughout my day. But I've recognized more and more, especially as things get pretty busy in ministry, that like I need to carve out some time to be intentional because just as like, okay, I'm going to set a dinner date with a friend of mine so we can catch up. Like if I'm not doing that with the source of my life, then I, I feel that I'm really just kind of letting life happen Mm. as opposed to living i just feel like i'm just becoming a passive recipient of all of these events just reacting to them as opposed to like i'm responding to something you know Mm -hmm. and i'm acting upon Mm -hmm. upon these situations yeah you know and that that connects to what we were saying earlier about how in a way your desire to resist the middle class american life and like this uh I don't know, materialism that, that our culture promotes and, and then being more real with yourself, with God and not being performative. Like all these things have to do with, with what you're describing, huh? Do you, do you see that? Yeah, I'm starting. Yeah. Thanks for pointing that out. Sometimes I forget that (laughs) that connection sometimes, but when I was in high school, I was really into punk rock, uh-huh. among other things. And yeah. that's another reason why Kai Oaks uh, yeah. and yeah. I can, can connect and get along. There's another one in, in another parishioner who's way more punk rock than I am. Um, every time he mentions bands that I don't know, I just kind of nod and be like, yeah, sure. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but um, but I guess there was a, that was that rebellious side of me, you know, all along. But it was a, the rebellion was couched, I guess, in a, in a kind of a sadness and in a kind of mm-hmm. uh, an anger with like, well, what is this? What's the point of all of this? And if you're telling me this is the point, like, I don't understand. This doesn't make any sense to me. There are people who are living under the bridge. There are people that that people don't think are people. And what are we doing about this? Why? How can we say that we're Christian and all of this other crap is happening in the world? And and why do I feel guilty all the time that I'm not doing enough? You know, there was all of these questions, all of these confusions, which Father Bill, the first Jesuit I ever met, was really kind enough to listen to me rant. Mm. And then at the very end, he goes, Justin, you're not the savior of the world. That job is taken, mm-hmm. you know, and then wrestling with that with that contradiction too. But like, well, we got to do something, you know, and it's taking it's it's that's still an ongoing journey for me, mm. you know. So is Christianity and its truth form punk? <laughs> 
I those are hard. That's hard because <laughs> in some ways there are so different, such different categories, and yeah, there's yeah. just so many different histories to it. Right. But you know, there's been that con. There's been that contrast. You know, there's that con. There's ever since even just like monasticism, there's been the kind of the against the world kind of attitude. And you know, the letter. I mean, the Gospel of John is all about you know setting up the world as a contrast to, mm-hmm. you know, to Jesus. You know, I don't love you as the world loves you. Um, and yet at the same time, you know, like Richard, I'm, you know, I've been reading off and on this Richard Rohr book on the universal Christ. And yet at the same time, Christianity is in some ways, or being with Jesus and the Christ, the universal Christ is the, the, the deepest actualization and fulfillment and manifestation of what is the world and the goodness that's already in. And St. Ignatius is like, one of the reasons why I love that that spirituality is because it acknowledges we're seeking God in all things, which means that God is in all things, which means that there is really nothing bad, mm. you know? So somehow my perspective's warped. Mm. <laughs> and sometimes it takes that rebellious side to figure, to go up to the other end and find that, you know, really it's not as bad as I thought. You know, as you say that, I'm thinking about how, like, yeah, myself as a teenager, People would tell me I was countercultural or whatever, and and it, and for me it was probably just based on like I don't really care what people think; I just care what God thinks. I was like so seeped in that attitude from early on in life, and yet as my faith has matured, and it's become less of this resistance and like this fighting against what's evil and bad message of Christianity and and more of a deepening into the non-dualism of Christ and like how yeah God is all things all of this is good all of this is holy everything every experience if you look at it close enough God is there yeah. God is working wonders yeah I'm just curious what you have to say about like shifting our mindset and opening our our views wider so that we can see how it's not a battle, but it's actually an embrace. Yeah. And well, I mean, even Richard Rohr will say that, like, you got to start first with good dualism before you go into non-dualism, mm. right? And so maybe that those rebellious uh, impulses that we had was a necessary part to kind of break the categories a little bit, or to set up the categories that we could u- later use to break. I remember a few years ago when the second sex abuse scandal broke out, um, mm. when the Philadelphia report came out, and um, I was reeling, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm in formation, I'm not a priest yet, and I'm just like, again, questioning, like, is this worth it, you know, is this going through? And and I was talking with somebody who's part of a 12-step program about my feelings about, you know, these bishops and these priests who have done these uh, horrible and harmful things, and and he's like, yeah, you know, well, it's this, this is, this is what it is. And I said, like, yeah, of course, every organization will have good people and bad people. And he's like, no, they're, we're just people. Mm. And I took that really seriously coming from a man in a 12 step program, right? Because these people who are in recovery, addicts in recovery, have this keen awareness that anytime we set up that dualism of good and bad and good and bad, like, we kind of lose ourselves in that categorization too. Like I'd like to assume that I'm the good person, you know, but it's so much more complicated than that, you know, and everybody has a story. And if like these people who have done so much harm are still made in the image and likeness of God, then, oh my gosh, like that's a challenge. Mm. Being close to my own shortcomings, just like, you know, guys into 12 step programs are always, you know, talking about like, looking at ourselves and you know what is our part to play in our resentments and 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 at the same time 
praying for the people that we resent and doing some really gospel focused stuff. Like I've learned a lot from, from people in, in the 12 steps, like that's, and so is Richard Rohr actually, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. but that has kind of helped to break that dualism too, because then it's like, it's not just about good or bad. It's about healing. It's about recovery. You know, like there is a sickness, there has been a sickness from the, almost the near the beginning of creation mm-hmm. and God is helping us all into recovery. Are you saying that being being faithful, being a disciple of Christ is is really about humility and and like not ever um, causing someone to be the other, but just recognizing the shared humanity? That's you know that's part of it. So like um, two things. One was for one of my assignments as a Jesuit formation, I asked to go to the prison in the Philippines, the national prison, national believed prisons in the Philippines. Being in that space with men who were constantly called monsters by the mainstream media, you know, criminals, monsters, people we should have just killed on the streets or something like that, and really mm-hmm. like experiencing their love and their welcome of me, and it's like how could a monster be this patient with me how can a monster feed me you know with what nothing food that they had how could a monster share their story so vulnerably with me and then seeing all the ways that people have they've been victims as well and which is not to excuse the things that they did that harmed other people but to see that there's always a bigger story to things so the one you know being a disciple recognizing that you know god is in everybody mm-hmm. and two there was a Jesuit document, the General Congregation 32, that came out in the 70s. And it, in a very stark way, it says in the beginning of one of the documents, what does it mean to be a Jesuit? A Jesuit is a sinner called to be a companion of Christ as Ignatius was. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So that, like, to be a sinner, you know, mm-hmm. called to be a companion of Christ as Ignatius was. Mm. A loved sinner. You know, I think that's kind of... That's Christianity is recognizing the truth of both of those yeah. living together and like in a non-judgmental way, just like, yeah, there it is, you know, and mm-hmm. like, just like that guy in the 12-step program told me, like, they're just people, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. That's quite the identity statement. I mean, it's not, it's bold to introduce in yourself that way or think of yourself that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let's hear about Dolores Mission. Here we are. Uh, you've been serving here since 2020. Since 2020. Mm-hmm. You were ordained right out in the court at Right on the courtyard, right yeah. Right beginning pandemic, yeah. So what is it like to serve here at this really vibrant parish? Oh my gosh. It's a paradox of a lot of things. Um, there are times when the highs are really high and the lows are really low. It's constant surprise. You know, the people here are very resilient. It's primarily working class Latino families. Um, people who are worried about their whether or not they're going to have a place to stay next month, people who don't have a place to stay, um, people who have survived uh, horrific violence, family members killed, uh, family members sick, and yet seeing that they come to the plaza on Sundays and they sit together and they laugh and they give their time and what little money that they have to people who are even in more dire circumstances the men who are sleeping in our church, the um, people in the Casa de los Pobres in Tijuana, um, random acts of kindness that I'll hear about every now and then when I talk to parishioners, talking about the ways that they deliver food to folks living on the street, you know? Mm. 
it's a constant sort of amazement in my, on my mind, like, where does this strength come from? Where does this resilience come from? That said, I find it difficult now because we're kind of in a time of transition. The neighborhood is changing. You know, we used to be surrounded by housing projects and now we're not. We still have the Pico Gardens housing project south of us. There's the, the gentrification that's coming in to the neighborhood because we're so close to downtown LA and the arts district. And this is like a just a hip place to be now in Boyle Heights, you know? Mm. There's a lot of stories told about Boyle Heights and its history. And uh, so th- that the displacement that will come with that is something that will affect our parish. So I worry about that. I worry about our young people. I worry about our elderly. <laughs> I worry mm. about our elderly who feel isolated and are, are worried about their health and can't go out as much. But I also worry about our young people, the people who are their grandchildren or their children who a lot of times actually don't feel that they find a place in the church, even a church as, you know, some would say radically progressive as Dolores mission, you know, they might still not feel find that they have a place here. Um, so it, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that I worry about and a lot of things that are difficult. And, you know, again, like to have that perspective shift that comes with being with Jesus where he's like, okay, like look at those kids who hugged you on the courtyard on the way here. You know what I mean? Like, but then I'm like, well, okay, but what about in 10 years? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. are they going to come to church? You know, like, yeah. so in some ways, I think Dolores Mission has a lot of things going for it that is different from other parishes. And at the same time, we struggle with some of the same things that a lot of parishes, I think, will struggle with. And the reality of being a parish primarily made up of immigrants um, and the generations that come after that, something that I've lived in my own life, mm-hmm. that's going to be, I think, in the future, that's going to be something we're going to need to take a lot more seriously and how do we hand on the best of our tradition and the best of our history to a new generation and see them take it and run with it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I feel like you're describing is is really the the Paschal mystery of community building build, and really building a, a community of faith and how there's constant dances of shadows and lights and like we're dying to our desires we're dying to our ideas and visions about how we think should go and at the same time like the energy of the resurrection is uplifting and transforming constantly it's like the both andness is always occurring around us in a community of faith so um yeah i'm curious if you here notice that too so every every lent we'll have our via crucis you know our stations of the cross and we'll walk around the neighborhood Mm. as part of that and Different groups of the parish will take responsibility for leading that and guiding that, you know, and it's it's always a very beautiful experience to 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 literally walk around the neighborhood. And I've heard stories in the past that those walks around the neighborhood were were for safety. They were escorting children to and from school so that they wouldn't be um, tempted or harassed by local gang members. But also they were taken to pray for peace in the neighborhood and where the women in the parish would actually go and approach men who were involved in gang life and boys involved in gang life and basically love on them and pray with them mm. and things like that. So every time we walk around the neighborhood, there is that that memory, that institutional memory, this lived reality right now that it's like, okay, well, it's not as bad as it used to be per se, but we still struggle with public safety. We still struggle with economic hardship. We still struggle with all of these things, but mm-hmm. we kind of live in that space, you know, like we can get interrupted at any moment, you know. I've been interrupted from the walking from the parking lot to the office by like various incidents, you know, people struggling with mental illness, you know, who who are having an episode, or like police that are just pulling up because of some some incident that happened mm. um, down the block or something like that. And 
that constant interruption can be kind of <laughs> can be very off-putting but it is sort of living that mystery of like the passion the resurrection like here's all of this suffering and yet somehow in all of that we're becoming a certain kind of people i've caught that in glimpses here mm. uh in mostly in the people and how at least in the past and somehow in the present people are continuing to organize around that mm-hmm. and the legacy is just like it's in the neighborhood like we have speed bumps on certain streets because of what Rita Chaires and a bunch of other women did to organize the community to get those speed bumps there so that drive-by shootings wouldn't happen as regularly or as deadly as they were that killed um, children in the area, you know? Mm-hmm. So people get fired up, you know, mm-hmm. when, when crisis happens. But when the crisis isn't as acute, will we have the ganas? Will we have, like, the desire to, to continue to move forward step by step and whatever this the resurrection looks like because then the solution doesn't seem as clear mm-hmm. right if the crisis is violence or if the crisis is starvation or something like that the solution seems pretty clear we're going to organize a food sale you know we're going to feed these folks or oh, there are homeless people we're going to make a shelter and we're going to house people oh there's there's violence we're going to meet the homies where they're at we're going to give them jobs and things like that but what if the crisis is this long-term thing yeah. about the ongoing economic change of the neighborhood the the housing crisis the gentrification the yeah. the youth who are struggling with anxiety and depression not connected to the economic distress of their parents, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, right now we're in this midst where we're trying to organize around more long-term fights. And it's hard because then the solutions don't seem as clear, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know one of the things you're involved in with involved with is LA Voice, which is a multi-race, multi-faith justice organizing community. Yeah, it's a federation. It's a yeah. it's a community org. I mean, it's a federation of yeah. Pico, California. It's a community organizing network. Yeah, yeah, that is one of the ways you're able to advocate for the systemic change and kind of mm-hmm. do the social analysis you need to do to figure out what the solutions are. Okay. Yeah. And what what are you learning about what it means to continue to be faithful? Well, what I'm learning is it's a lot of work. It's a lot of putting in time, even when the headlines aren't talking about something Mm -hmm. that we're all needing, you know, like for a long time, the headlines were about the crisis of homelessness, especially around the time of elections of the mayor and and midterm elections. But now that the headlines aren't about that, that's still a need. Mm -hmm. So how are we going to keep the energy going? You know, so that's the time and that's the work and that's the dedication. But at least for me, that energy comes again when I get to meet the people who are suffering from these directly when parishioners come up to me and tell me that they're worried that they're going to not ha- they're not going to have a place to live next month mm-hmm. or that they are being evicted or something like that or seeing the folks who are still living underneath the bridge a block away from our parish you know it's not on the headlines but it's still right in front of me so my own like animal lizard brain can see that this is still a need but what I'm learning, too, is that like with these big fights, it can't just be a local and particular organizing. It has to be something that is collaborative with especially people of faith from all around yeah. L.A. County. So, yeah, it's a collaborative. It's how to maintain that energy, um, how to organize around around that based on our faith and based on the relationships of care that we have for our people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I bet it's messy. It's very messy. I'm working with our organizer, Angel Mortel, and it's like, well, if it's messy, then how can it be organized? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell me about that paradox. Well, well, I guess the paradox is, at least the way that what I've been learning about organizing, is it definitely starts with these one-to-one conversations. And those relationships 
and those conversations are all messy going in not so much with an agenda but with like a purpose mm. you know what i mean so then it does get messy and then like you enter into their chaos enter into the mess and listen for the alignment and listen to all these things so then there's that messiness there but then there's the organization piece of like bringing people together and giving them the chance to tell their story and then giving them ideas and helping them to come up with ideas for what they want to do next I think we just put forward an organizing principle or an organizing plan, and then it just gets messy after that. Mm -hmm. And then we organize based on that mess. We're just constantly kind of like, okay, here's a circle. Okay, that circle is getting a little bit wobbly around the lines. Well, then let's, let's form another circle yeah. around that. I guess, I don't know. That's kind of how I'm visualizing it right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's messy because people's lives can be messy, but it's organized in terms of like people can come together based around that messiness. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I have the image of like, uh, the people of God walking through the desert, right? Or like, yeah. you know, it's just like all, everything's happening. Like people are falling down. People are wetting their pants. Yes, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Everything's yeah, going on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dehydrated, right? Right, like, right. Like whatever. And they're, together, the collective is moving forward. They they have a mission. They're going somewhere together. Right. There's a structure yeah. that can contain all of that mess. Yeah. And still move it forward. Yeah. And I think for us, the the biggest structure that would contain all of us, you know, in our faith is the love of God. Mm -hmm. And then those smaller structures that can help organize us is that the goodwill that we have toward each other, the care that we have toward each other specifically in our relationships. And then just like meeting times and agendas and right. planned actions and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. which are easy to you know to get messy right but then again just going back to like what's the last thing that really brought us all together and 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 is moving us forward and can contain all of that messiness God's love. so yeah that's love mm. god's love our love for each other speaking of mess and the pursuit for justice and god's love before we got into the interview, we were talking a bit about arts and how it connects mm. to spirituality. And I'd love to hear you discuss how you see justice, the pursuit of justice and arts intersecting and like how that helps to foster the faith in a community or in, in a particular person and their personal relationship with Christ. Wow. The, the, the relationship between art and justice. Jeez. I mean, it's, that's still something I'm trying to figure out. Well, we could look at the practical aspect of it, right? There's all of those activist art and protest art and all that sort of stuff that gives expression to the fire and the heart that people have for something different in the world. Right. But I guess in my own life, what I see art does for me personally is it can kind of challenge my imagination. It can limit it in some ways, but I think when it's truly art that like it's coming from the spirit and the spirit's moving and the spirit responding to something, it kind of blows up the imagination for like, if we can't imagine how the world can be different, then how could we ever act toward that? You know what I mean? And Jesus was about expanding our imagination. The earliest disciples were living that and imagining that as well. You know, like, whoa, what if we all just like pooled our resources together and let some leaders with a greater vision of things decide who... Who needs things you know what i mean mm. and, and all that sort of stuff like in the early church art and imagination and desire are all of these things that are in the mix so that it helps me but how it helps other people i think art works on that realm of the heart because the analysis is necessary the practical things are necessary how to turn people out to meetings how to listen to their concerns how to gather the data but when you look at something that really kind of moves you in the heart 
that gets me personally, that gets me fired up and get the energy going to actually do the work that needs to be done. You know, so it inspires. It's inspiring. It's yeah. inspiring, and it and it's hopefully it expands the imagination. Yeah. When I was showing you earlier, the image that one of the Jesuits who was here painted of Our Lady of the Way, to see that, okay, like Mary is walking with the immigrants, just taking away these obstacles between them and a, a stable life. That's inspiring. That makes me want to work for that. You mm-hmm. know, Our Lady of Guadalupe is someone that inspires so many of the people in the parish with her cariño, her care, and her love for them. And the ways that she's been appearing in different mm. political art and protest art, that's kind of fascinating. That's a mm. whole, there are people who study that, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because that channels into something. The fierce love of a mother who can care for her children and wants a better world for them, you know, right. that's there too. And if our mother isn't imagining a better world for us, or Jesus himself, right? He has cast down uh, the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. If that doesn't expand the imagination mm-hmm. and foment the desire and the heart for that world, mm-hmm. that reality that she's singing about, hmm. then all it is is just reactionary anger. Right, 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 right. The imagination that the gospel has given us and the spirit of God as it continues to work through creative people. It's all rooted in the Magnificat that you're quoting, and it's fostering and feeding where we're going as a people. Uh, and, and so somehow we get to be open and receptive to how the spirit's moving and working through us and, and alive. And ultimately, it's a long ways from that very comfortable middle-class life where you're a slave to the corporations earning the money uh, stacking up bills and buying more materials, right? So, yeah. like, so the imagination of God is actually liberating because it's so creative and yeah. it's because it's so justice oriented. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Martin Luther King Jr., I've been staying close to him. I mean, what an amazing preacher, too. His imagination, the way he put that into his sermons and into his speeches, is amazing. But, you know, the way he took Gandhi's idea of soul force and ran with it. You know, the, the stereotype of this physical force is destructive, mm-hmm. but soul force is creative. Yeah. You know? And art is creative, and mm-hmm. God is creative, and we can be creative. We're not just destroying structures, we're deconstructing them, mm-hmm. we're creating new ones. We were advocating for a, a measure in Los Angeles last midterm elections. You measure ULA, United House LA was imagining like, okay, well, if we if we tax some of these real estate sales that are over $4 million, or $5 million, and we get the revenue from that tax, for a dedicated fund for affordable housing. Mm. That'll bring stable funds for the things that we need and that lots of people need in Los Angeles. Like, that's creative. You know what I mean? Like, that can create more houses, that can preserve the ones that are already there, that can, like, create opportunities for so many people to think about how to protect people who are renters, how to hopefully, like, even help struggling landlords who need the kind of help that they need in order to maintain the places that they are already making affordable for people, Mm. you know what I mean? Mm. I think at its best, the work for justice in faith and community organizing around that is a creative force. It's the sole force. Mm. Mm -hmm. Because if we just leave it to the coercive powers of the state, then I don't know how much hope that I have in that either. Mm. How do you persist? I mean, I, I mean, I, I hear your passion, but I don't want to make but then an I assumption. Looked, but then I look tired. Yeah. You do. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't want to make an assumption because, but like, 
I know it's got to be tough. You're doing hard work. Yeah, you're climbing yeah. uphill. You're, there's a lot of failure. Yeah. So, so how do you remain like remain faithful in the fight for justice, in the struggle, in the creative work, in the building community, in your prayer life? Yeah. What keeps you showing up all the time? Oh, gosh. I mean, that's a question that I've been really trying to answer the last couple of months. Um, we went to a funeral um, or I helped celebrate a funeral a couple of weeks ago of one of our parishioners' dads. And he had one of the most creative selections of readings at a funeral ever. Mm. <laughs> Things that you wouldn't find in the book, but it's still in the, the Bible in the book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, with, um, and he, for the first reading, he had his mom read Hebrews 11, which is when the letter to the Hebrews talks a lot about what faith is and who our ancestors in faith are. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. By faith, Abraham did this, that, and the other. By faith, Sarah received the power to generate even in her old age because she believed that the one who made the promise was trustworthy. So that Mm -hmm. kind of stuck into my mind. Mm -hmm. But what really got to me (laughs) was a few lines after that, the writer says, these all died in faith, not having received what was promised, but having greeted it, and seen it from afar, knowing that they were strangers in this land. The image of Abraham and Sarah, and really me, or a lot of us, who feel that we're not in the promised land, but that we can see it and greet it from afar. And our faith allows us to see it even when we're not there. We're just passing through here. That's one thing that's been helping me to persevere is knowing that and somehow in faith we live the reality that we want to live in already yeah. or we try to when we're not in the promised land we try to live as if we are in the promised land and knowing that we're on the way to it and when you look at what happened to moses but then what also happened to martin luther king jr at the end of his life you know it's really eerie to listen to his and really powerful to listen to his last speech right because he says i've seen the promised land and i may not get there with you but i've been to the mountaintop i've seen the promised land I fear no man, you know, like he just knows that it's going to be there, even if he might not get there. And that kind of humility and that freedom really uh, was is really powerful. And, you know, it would happen to our bishop um, recently, Bishop David O'Connell, who was murdered, you know, a man who really fought for justice, who was standing with workers, who was um, organizing his community against violence in the places where he was a pastor, places where he's a priest, you know. He really lived that as well. And he didn't get to see the promised land, quote unquote. You know what I mean? He didn't get to see like Los Angeles turned into a place where all are welcome and people aren't dying by violence. But he still saw it and greeted it from afar. Mm. You know what I mean? And he still organized people along the way to move in that direction. Mm. And so having the example of these ancestors in faith, knowing that, you know, I'm not the first one to walk this path. And knowing that reminder from Hebrews that it's like, well, even if I'm not there, even if I'm not where I want to be, and even if our people are not where we want to be, what faith does, which is a gift from the Holy Spirit, right? What faith does is it allows me to see it and greet it from afar. Mm -hmm. What are are you seeing? What do you believe in? The promised land smells like really good Filipino food and (laughs) Mexican food. And people laugh, and it sounds like children laughing. It feels like shade on a hot day underneath a really big tree, uh, a really big old tree, and uh, a breeze blowing through it. And um, 
you know, and that's partly a response to, you know, our climate crisis mm-hmm. and the way that our people suffer. You know, the poor will always be the ones who suffer the most from the climate crisis because in some ways the climate crisis is to the benefit of the wealthy and the rich, you know. So even if the world is dying, it's like we're actually getting more and more wealth from extraction of these resources and polluting the earth and everything. But our people here won't have air conditioning. They won't have shade in the super hot days. So the promised land is a shady, breezy land where everyone from different colors of skin can share their food and laugh together and can see and can celebrate Christ in each other. They can cry together. They can hug each other mm-hmm. without fear of getting each other sick. And even if they do feel sick, that they have people that they know can take care of them in holistic and caring ways. I mean, the, the, the visions of the prophets really animate all of this, right? Mm-hmm. When they talk about old people dancing, you know, mm-hmm. that is something that would give me hope. And yeah. I see little bits of that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, I see little bits of that here in the parish. Yeah. You know? So it energizes you and keeps you going because when I focus you on it, it. Yeah, no, yeah, well, yeah. When I, I mean, I could I could focus on the freight train that's coming to hit us all. Yeah. Or but is that what God wants me to focus on at this moment? Mm. God would love me to, to look at the kids who ran up to give me a hug on the way here, you know, mm. because there's something God is trying to communicate something. They're communicating something and God is trying to communicate something through them. And inspiring me, you know, like, I don't have kids of my own. I will never have kids of my own. And yet to feel that somehow the land that I want them to inherit is a land where they can enjoy life and give thanks to God for that life. Maybe that's the kind of thing that gets parents to wake up at 3 a.m. in the morning to feed their kid, you know. Mm. Maybe that's what gets some of the young families and the parents to show up for a meeting when they had all the other things to do, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like when I think of all the parents that show up for anything, for church and for <laughs> social justice, organizing committee meetings and like catechism on Sundays and things like that, it's like, you know, if there's not that hope that their kids will get a taste of the promised land in it. Mm. And I'm starting to f- understand a little bit of what that strength is of love that they have. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is that what discipleship is for you? Love, hope, moving towards the promised moving land. toward the promised land. It's funny because that letter to the Hebrews also goes into Jesus after talking about all of these things, you know. Right. And and he says in the beginning of chapter twelve, so let us run then, you know, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the the perfecter of our faith, mm-hmm. you know, because I guess the letter to the Hebrews is trying to tell the people, yeah, like. In some ways, we have already arrived at the promised land, but we have the one who is guiding us toward the promised land. It's Jesus um, and his life and his death and his resurrection. And so if discipleship specifically understood is following Jesus, I know where Jesus is leading us to the resurrection, to the promised land. So that's kind of our journey, you know, Mm. like we're in exile. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, the the journey is the destination as well, you know? Yeah, like, we're on our way and we're there already. And, yeah, yeah, Jesus is here too. Yeah. You know, and that's a little bit of the foretaste of what is yeah. there to come, you know? The fact that the kids can still laugh and play. Mm-hmm. The kids are laughing and playing in the worst places in the world right now. Right. In the most violent places in the world right now. And, of course, they're being traumatized too and we need to care for them. But, yeah, there's... It's not all hopeless, mm. you know? And the discipleship is... That messy following, the messy Jesus business of following Jesus to the promised land that he's prepared for us. Yeah, yeah. Amen. What else would you like to say about the mess of living the gospel? About the mess of living the gospel? 
when we're recording this right now it's it's mardi gras it's the tuesday before lent begins when you know we kind of force ourselves to walk this desert in preparation for the resurrection and i don't know i I just i want to say that it, it, it can be real like if if you're like don't want to take a step like okay you know mm. but tell jesus about that if you don't like the mess you don't like the way that the mess looks like tell jesus about it mm. every time i've been raw and vulnerable before god i've been surprised at how jesus has responded to that or how mary has responded to that because the mess is real the suffering is real the pain is real and we want safety we want care we want love and that is all the things that god wants to give us if we allow ourselves to be that real and vulnerable with our needs before God. And that messy Jesus business is the mix of the realness and the real mess, but at the same time, the transcendent beauty in high places. That's there too. Like one little bit before we might wrap up. This last summer, I was I was on a retreat with a bunch of other Jesuits in the high Sierras, and I got lost in the woods at night. Yeah, just trying to go out using, using the bathroom. <laughs> It was, oh no, I'm sorry, Yeah, yeah I'm no, it's, I, I'm glad I can laugh at it now, you know, it was a pretty, pretty crazy experience, you know, but, you know, and I was really worried that I wasn't going to make it, that I was going to like, you know, mm. freeze to death or not be found for days or, you wow. know, or start like, lost? my estimate is probably about 930 um, in, in the evening till 230 in the morning. I just kept following this river um, that I thought would lead me up to the lake by where we were sleeping and I was following it the wrong way. And then I just decided to turn back and go upstream. Mm. And then when I finally arrived over a ledge, I remember seeing the lake or I didn't see the lake. I saw a black stillness. Mm. And then I saw in the middle of that black stillness, a little white light, which was the reflection of a star. The lake was so still it was reflecting off Mm. of the still lake. I'm like scared for my life and here's something so beautiful. You know what I mean? Like that is untouched by all the worries and all the cares that I have. And it still inspires this beauty and this appreciation in me, you know? And it turned out that that was in some ways a kind of a guiding light because that also helped me to realize that that was the lake by which we were sleeping. And, you know, so I just followed the edge of that lake, eventually made it to camp. And it's also kind of that symbol, like seeing that lake reflected off of that black still pond is like, there is a higher power, as they say in the program, you know, there is a power greater than ourselves that can restore us to sanity, you know, even in the midst of all the mess. Amen. <laughs> Thank you, Justin. Yeah. Was there anything you want to share with the listeners about how they can support Dolores Mission or learn more about the Jesuits and, oh, yeah. you and your creative Thank you. work? Thank or... you for the plug. Yeah, we, um, you yeah. Know, we have a Facebook page where you can tune into our masses online. We oh, have cool. a we have a um, an English mass at nine o'clock in the morning, a Spanish mass at ten thirty, both uh, live streamed. We get people tuning into our masses at nine a.m. from like all around the country, so cool. everyone listening is more than welcome to tune in. And you know, you could always go to our website as well to find out ways that you can support our our work here. The kids that graduate from eighth grade that are going to Catholic high schools, we got a scholarship for them. If you want to donate to help out some of our partners like Proyecto Pastoral and the homeless um, shelter that that they operate on our grounds and other places. There's ways to connect with them yeah. on our website as well. But come visit, really, yeah. just like what, what yeah. you're doing right now, like really just to, to be at the place. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, just to be to have you here. Like that's one of the gifts of this community is welcome, yeah. you know, bienvenido. 
So yeah, you guys, everyone who's listening here has a place um, open to them in Boyle Heights in Los Angeles. And you can come. And then if you go to mass, the special treat is after mass. You can go to uh, our food sale, our venta with mm. homemade tortillas that uh, wrap delicious tacos and quesadillas and sopes. And then there's menudo and people Heaven come. Together. Yeah, That's a little bit, little, a little taste of the promised land. Yeah. <laughs> oh, amen. Well, thank you so oh, much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Messy Jesus Business is produced and edited by Colin Wamskans. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.